I was not around when Pong was invented, the video game. Um, I, uh, I didn't grow up when um, Atari uh, was, was the video game system. I did grow up when Nintendo was the uh, video game system of choice. I think we have a picture. Um, so this was what we lovingly referred to as the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, right? You'll, you'll notice a gun, uh, a couple controllers. You might notice that the picture, they try to make it like the wires aren't there, but this is before wireless, right? So you had to plug in those bad boys. You could only take that gun maybe 12 feet back, and, and, and there was the game. Uh, it, when you purchased the package, it came with a gun, two controllers, and then there was a double header, Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Um, two kids down the street had the Nintendo Entertainment System. Camden and, uh, and Greg, uh, Greg Rogers, they, they both had it. And I went over to their house a lot and, and played a ton of Nintendo, um, as much as their parents would allow us. I don't know if parents understood screen time back in the day, because it felt like we played a lot of video games. Um, I never verbalized this, but I thought that owning a Nintendo would make me happy. I, I never said that, but deep within me, I believed that. Uh, so Christmas was approaching, and probably come maybe August or so, I started dropping not-so-subtle hints that I needed a Nintendo entertainment system that my brother and I could bond over playing video games together in the house, that it would probably help our whole family out. Um, so eventually, Christmas comes, we get the Nintendo, and man, it, it was awesome. I played so much Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt is a really dumb, dumb game. A bird flies across and you shoot it, right? And if you miss, the, the, the dog stands up like this and laughs at you. Um, uh, that didn't happen much to me. Um, but we, we loved this video game system. And, and I bet for a solid month, like we just played and played and played and played. But eventually, it got kind of boring. Like, I wasn't as interested. And it's funny, because with my friends for months, like, all I want to do is go to their house and, and play uh, Nintendo. And I, I thought I needed it in my house, but it, it faded, actually, pretty quickly for me. I'm not a huge video game guy. Well, at some point, maybe a year or two later, a movie came out. And guys my age, I don't know if you'll even remember this, but there's this movie called The Wizard. And uh, Fred Savage was the star. If you remember the Wonder Years, Fred Savage was Kevin. Uh, it's a terrible movie. Don't even go look for it. It was really, really lame. Um, but basically, it was, a, it was a giant advertisement and announcement for the game Super Mario 3 that was coming out. So me and all my buddies went, I think it was for my birthday, like we went to go see the movie together and then the game came out a couple months later, but in the movie you could see what the game was actually going to be like. And I... Again, subconsciously, I thought, man, I need Super Mario 3 to satisfy me. And, and I got the game. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. I had so much fun. Uh, I'm, I, like I said, I'm not into video games, and I'm sure it's for nostalgic reasons, but you cannot convince me that Super Mario 3 is not the best game ever. Like, I, 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 think, it, I think it is fabulous. Um, I don't play it anymore. I've probably played it in 25 years. Um, but I played it as much as my parents would let me for weeks and weeks. But again, at some point, I got bored. It, it didn't give me what I thought it would give me. And, and that's pretty silly, right? I was probably 11 or 12. Um, 
when I give gifts to my kids now or my nieces and nephews, like I hope that they'll like that toy, that present, but I also know that eventually it's going to end up at Goodwill or a garage sale or maybe they'll break it and, and, and it'll get recycled or thrown away. Um, we know that that's how kids are. But adults, we're, we're actually that way too. We fall for it and our toys are just bigger and more expensive. Now it's not a video game, maybe it's a boat. Or maybe it's, uh, for me, every summer, I end up dreaming, dreaming about wave runners, and I look on Craigslist for weeks uh, trying to find a cheap wave runner. Maybe for you, it's, it's a vacation that you want to take somewhere. Or, or, or maybe what, what, you, what you think will make you happy is if your family is just, could be just right. Catch a steelhead. Steel Preach. <laughs> oh, man, you're getting me distracted. Uh, Maybe you think it's, it's your career that will bring satisfaction. Uh, maybe it's making a difference in the world. We're all fooled into thinking that, that possessions, that, that wealth, that things can satisfy us in ways that only Christ can. What is it that if, if you had this thing, you, you believe it would make you happy, you'd be satisfied? Our truth statement is this. Nothing the world offers will meet our longings to be satisfied. In Christ alone are our desires met and guaranteed. So there's nothing in all of creation that will meet these longings that we have for satisfaction, for, for, for permanent satisfaction. It's only in Christ that our desires are met and guaranteed. Jonathan Clements wrote uh, years ago in the Wall Street Journal. He said, we may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going well. We constantly hanker after fancier cars, fatter paychecks, and initially such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades, and soon we're yearning for something else. Ecclesiastes 6 is, uh, it is a hard chapter. Um, one, um, one commentator wondered if this is one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture, because he, he, he just lifts off the disappointments in life, and he asks questions that really only God can answer. Verse 1 starts this way. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Martin Luther called these verses a description of a man who lacks for no good and, and a happy life, and yet he does not have one. He does not have the happy life that he should. And we all play the, the what-if game or the if-only game. What if I had that job? Or if only I'd married someone like that? Or if I looked like that, I would be happier. If my kids would treat me this way, I'd be satisfied. If I could vacation at that resort, or if my house had these amenities. But what happens when we get those things? We get a new list, right? We, we get a new list of things that we long for. Because what looked like it should make us happy just doesn't. Maybe it does for a short time, but it's not the, the, the longing that we have, the desire that we have for long-term satisfaction. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes points out that these gifts, they can be good. They can be enjoyed even, but they won't, they won't give us the deep satisfaction that we hope for because they were never made to. It's pretty foolish to believe 
that possessions, that wealth can satisfy you because that's not the purpose of wealth. Right? We, we have money to pay for products and services. Uh, sometimes I drink Diet Coke. I don't think that a Diet Coke is going to help me lose weight. Right? It's not intended to. I know it, it, it doesn't give me more calories, but it, it doesn't boost my metabolism. I've never drank one thinking, I bet I'll lose three pounds today. Right? It, it just wasn't made to do that. And similarly, these things that we look to in life to satisfy us, they were never made to do that. They will never satisfy us like Christ will. The man in verses 1 and 2, he's loaded. Right? He's rich beyond what we can imagine. He's famous. But it says he isn't given the power to enjoy these things like he wants to. Right? He has what most people would say should make him happy. What he lacks, though, is the ability to have those things give him what he wants. God doesn't just give the things. He gives us the ability to enjoy those things. And, and we've read in Ecclesiastes that, that we can enjoy these things that God has given us. I don't know if you like to cook. I, I do enjoy cooking. It's, uh, it's actually the outlet in life where I feel like I get to be creative. Um, uh, with that, I don't really follow recipes, right? Like, I'll, if I want to make something, I'll look up maybe three or four recipes, and I kind of just realize, like, okay, you have to have these things, apparently, and then everything else I just get to experiment with. So I, I, I kind of do this recipe fusion, I guess, that's pretty loose. But sometimes, uh, Lindsay, my wife, will, will ask me to cook something specific, and she says, and here's the recipe, um, which doesn't, I don't think that means she doesn't trust me most of the time. Um, she, she says I'm a good cook. Uh, but anyway, when she gives me a recipe, I know I'm supposed to follow the recipe, right? So I follow the recipe, and I will admit sometimes I get lost in other thoughts. And, and then uh, the dish will be done, and I'll try the dish. Right? take a little sample before I'm going to feed it to my family. I'm like, man, that doesn't taste right. And, and I'll go back, because now the pressure's on, because I was given a recipe. And I'll go back, and I'll look at the recipe, and, and I'm trying to think through, gosh, did I add that thing? Right? I look, I'm like, okay, there's the two cracked eggs. Like, obviously, I put that in. There, there's, there's the empty uh, measuring cup next to the sugar. I, I put that in. I look through, and, and I actually did every step, and yet it doesn't taste right. It, it should have worked, and that's kind of what's happening here in the passage. The man has everything that should add up to a good and happy life, and yet he's empty. There's this void. I wonder if you've ever felt that way, that you should have more satisfaction than you do. That you look at the circumstances of your life and, and you think, I should, I should be doing great. I should be feeling great. You, you might even have people that look at your life on the outside and wish that they had what you had, and yet you feel empty. The blunt truth of this passage is that wealth, possessions, fame, really Nothing in creation will bring us the lasting joy and satisfaction that only Christ can give us. We fool ourselves into thinking that these things can, but we all know that emptiness that we feel when we run after those things. Things can't satisfy us the way that we long to be satisfied. Marketing obviously exists to convince us that we need whatever product it is that they're trying to sell, that, that, that we need it, that we want it, that it's going to make us feel better. Uh, investing advertisement, right? So often they're, they're trying to scare us into thinking that we don't have enough saved up to live the life that we want to live someday in retirement. 
Well, the preacher isn't saying you can't enjoy possessions. He's been clear that, that not only can we, but we should. We can enjoy our home. You can enjoy a, a car, a motorcycle, a piece of art. You can enjoy a meal. You can enjoy uh, an experience with, with friends and family. But he doesn't want us to be tricked into thinking that it'll satisfy us ultimately. That satisfaction and contentment are found in God alone. I wonder if you feel discontent. Yeah, you have times of feeling good, but are those times short and fleeting? Have you considered that really it is only God that you long for? That's the Bible's answer. In Ecclesiastes, I understand it's a book that asks more questions and hard questions than it does give answers, but it's, it's a part of the whole of Scripture, and, and he's pointing us that, to the, the reality that our deepest needs are met in Christ, that you were made to know God and be known by him, that our hearts and our minds, even though they look to other avenues to fulfill our appetites, God is the only one who will satisfy us continually. You might remember back when we were in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus talks to her about similar things. She, she had this thirst, and he describes this living water that he gives, this, this spring in us that never runs out, that perfectly satisfies. There are all these knockoffs, but, but what Jesus offers is the only one. He's the only one that will make good on his promise to satisfy. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. That's hard. That is hard to read. There's, there's this part of me that just almost wishes we could skip over him talking about a stillborn child. Because I, I know, um, there, there are several I know in the room that you've experienced miscarriage, maybe multiple miscarriages. So for him to say this, uh, it, it punches you below the belt. And as I was getting ready this week, I was just praying for you. I was praying for the pain that, that you have experienced there. And I hope that you know that God was with you in that hard, hard time. And, and God is still with you as you, as you mourn the loss of a child that, that, you never, that you never got to hold and have. And, and maybe you were aware of God's presence, maybe you weren't, but God was with you. My guess is that he carried you in ways that you will not understand this side of heaven. The author uses a stillborn child, and I'm not sure if I can think of something that hurts more than that. Maybe you can, but he uses a stillborn child, and that can seem incredibly insensitive to you, and I can understand that, but I also hope you see what he's doing here. All right, this isn't flippant. This is very calculated. He's comparing how bad life can be, how much pain can be in life, even when a life looks like it has everything it needs to be good, and yet how, how, how void it can be, how, how painful it can be, how, how numbing it can be, and he compares that to the horror of, of losing a child before they're even born. And I'm, I am sorry what that might stir up in some of you in this room. This is a raw comparison. 
right? In Ecclesiastes, it's just, it's raw. He digs deep into pain. And I think that's an encouragement to us, that, that there's no pain that, that's too great for us to go to God with. So I hope, I hope that you can understand what he's doing here. And I do, I am sorry for your loss. Bible Testament standards, this man is really well off that he describes. He's got a ton of kids. And, and more kids means more blessing, right, to, to them. So he's got a hundred kids. If some is good, more is better. Maybe you've heard that. He believed it. He, he also lived a really long life, which meant the, the view was that, that he was blessed by God if he had all these years. And yet, he has all these things, everything that he needs for a good life, and his soul isn't satisfied. There's this longing in this man. There's a hole in his heart. So if we can have everything that, that should make us happy, and, and yet satisfaction is not guaranteed, what do we do? Do we just need to adjust our expectations that the satisfaction we long for can't actually be achieved? Right? Do we need to lower our aim so that we aren't disappointed. And this is a strategy that many of us use. Like maybe you're, uh, maybe you're getting ready to apply for college, or maybe you, you have this dream job, and you, you apply, you really, really want it, uh, you get an interview even, and, and what you do is uh, you, you want it so badly that you tell yourself, I'm not gonna get the job, or I'm not gonna get into to the school I want, because what you're doing is you're protecting yourself from disappointment. Well, maybe we should take that that attitude, that aim in life, recognize how hard it is to have deep and lasting satisfaction, but the problem is we're hardwired with this desire to be satisfied. It's an appetite that we can't rid ourselves of. Verse seven, it says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This appetite never goes away. Here's the cycle in verse 7. I don't know if you picked up on this. He's saying you work to eat so that you have the strength to work so that you can give money to purchase food so you have the strength to go back to work again. The appetite isn't satisfied. I've been trying over the last year to work out. I'm sure all of you can tell. <laughs> my, my scale can't tell, but hopefully you can. So I've been trying to work out, and I've been lifting. I've been doing some, I like to call it running, but it's probably called jogging or speed walking. Um, so I, 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 I've tried to convince myself that the treadmill is a cool thing right? Because uh, I'm paying money to belong to a club, right? So I should use their machines. Plus, you know how long it rains here, so it's not that hard to be motivated to try and work out inside rather than outside. So I, I try to tell myself, like, yeah, treadmills are great. And then a couple of weeks ago, the weather turned. And I said, you know what? I got these new running shoes. Let's go outside for a run. And here's what I realized. I hate treadmills. <laughs> Man, it's so much better to go outside and run, you get on a treadmill and you run technically, but you don't go anywhere. And it's miserable for me. And you notice if you belong to a health club, they've got treadmills. And what do they have right above them? A TV to numb you from running on a treadmill. Or they put it in front of a window. They would never put a treadmill just in a blank room with nothing. That would be torturous. So I get out on the road 
And not only do I like it more, I've got my little fancy GPS watch as if I'm a real runner, and I track my slow time, but I realized I'm moving way faster than I was on that treadmill, even uphill this week. My pace was faster than my average pace on a treadmill. The treadmill is this endless cycle of feeling like I'm moving, and yet I actually don't go anywhere. Isn't the treadmill of life kind of that way? You ever feel that way, that you work, you work, you strive to get that promotion, to make more money, to get recognition, to make a difference, but you feel like you're just on this treadmill. Nothing's changed. It says you've ran all these miles, and yet you stayed in the exact same place. Sometimes life feels that way. In a sense, you've gotten work done. You've gone somewhere, but you also feel like you're in the same spot you were years ago. You're really just working to eat, to have strength, to work, so you have money for food, to work. Verse 8, the preacher talks about the wise, and he's talked about the wise and the fool before, and he's asking again, is there an advantage? And he admits in previous chapters, yeah, there's, there's at least a little advantage. Most times, life will work out better for them, the wise than the fool, but not always. But then here he says, but both end up in the same place. Right? Both die. Death is the great equalizer. He moves on to the poor man with social skills. He says, does he have an advantage? Maybe the poor, maybe he can escape the traps of, of wealth. Perhaps he can avoid the faulty thinking that money actually will bring happiness. But he's still trapped by, de by desires. He has no advantage. Right? The, the trap of gaining and accumulating things so quickly becomes a God for us. We bow at the altar of materialism. But you know what? Minimalists, that can become a God too. Those aren't the answers. Being wise isn't the answer. Being poor isn't the answer. We all have desires. We can't escape our wants. There's an appetite in us, and even if we have some control over it, even if we keep it in check, the appetite's still there. The answer isn't more stuff, it's not less stuff, it's not wisdom, it's not folly. Verse 9, he, he says the appetite's a wander. So like my Nintendo couldn't satisfy me, things, while they might satisfy us for a time, they won't satisfy us long term. Our appetite moves on. He says, he says enjoy what you have, don't dream about what you don't have. Or, or enjoy the, the ham sandwich that's in your hand. Don't dream about the filet mignon that you could have bought instead. That does you no good. That doesn't fill your stomach. He says it's meaningless. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good? for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The first portion of verse 10 there, it seems familiar. It seems like something we've heard before. It sounds like there's nothing new under the sun, but if we read the rest of the sentence, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, this is how God has made life. He's made it so that things don't satisfy us the way that only he is, is meant to satisfy. God is sovereign. Right? He, he's made it this way. It says, it's known what man is. We don't compare to God. Man is not able to dispute the stronger one. 
right? Man, man can't dispute the Almighty. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, I love these verses. These verses uh, remind me of who God is and who I am. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Last week I said that we're made in the image of God, which means in a sense we are like him, but he is not like us. We can't dispute God. This doesn't mean we can't ask God questions. It doesn't mean we can't disagree and come to him with our, with our concerns. It does mean we should do that in reverence, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the preacher isn't saying we can't dispute God. He's saying it isn't a real fight. Right? Not, not, he's not saying it's not a fair fight. He's saying it isn't a real fight. One man put it this way. He said that we don't have arms long enough to box God. And I don't know if you know much about boxing. I don't. But every time there's a big fight, they'll talk about the two, uh, the two boxers' weight. They'll talk about their height. And then they talk about their reach. Right? How, how far can they be from the other guy in punch? Does one of them have an advantage? So this guy said that we don't have arms even long enough to box God. God is all everything. He's certainly all-knowing. There are all sorts of mysteries when it comes to God, and we aren't privy to what he does or why he does what he does. He doesn't consult you. He doesn't consult me. He doesn't seek our counsel or advice. We have no chance in disputing him. Now, with that said, isn't it amazing that God lets us come to him with our questions? And like I said, this needs to be done with reverence. I do not recommend arguing with God. You will not win, and you will regret it. Job argued with God. Job had almost everything stripped away from him except for his wife who told him to curse God and die. And then his buddies come, and they seem like they're good, and then eventually they're on his case, saying some things that are true and a lot of things that aren't. And then Job, he's had it, and he says some words towards God that he didn't know what he was saying. And then God comes back and speaks to him. And Job says this, he says, I've uttered what I do not understand, therefore I despise myself. Paul in Romans 9.20, he said, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So we can and we, sh- we should come to God with our questions, especially the questions that only God can answer. But we need to recognize that he is sovereign. We need to do that with reverence. He has decided how life works. He's decided that creation, no matter what it is, will never satisfy us. Only our creator can do that. Only our maker can do that. He made us this way. He made us to know him, to be known by him, to love him, and to be loved by him. And and when I see that he won't let creation satisfy us like that, I just see grace and love all over it. That he won't let me experience long-term satisfaction in anything but him. That I experience these disappointments, that that I can experience this emptiness is actually his grace because everything else would lead me to death. Imagine how deadly it would be if God let us be satisfied in wealth or possessions or whatever like we, we can be in him. I don't know if you know this, but antifreeze um, tastes really, really sweet. Um, now, antifreeze is, is a poison. It will kill you eventually if you, if you drink it. But antifreeze tastes really sweet. And apparently this is a big problem uh, for cats. They find antifreeze and they just they drink it up. 
because it tastes so good. So back in 2014, um, some states started requiring that, that the people that make antifreeze, that they would add a really bitter, nasty taste to it so that this poison wouldn't taste sweet, right? It, it seems wrong that, that poison could taste sweet. Man, God doesn't let the, the poison of other things in life taste sweet long term. He, he, he lets us feel the dissatisfaction with those things to point us to God, and I think that's a gift. Verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him, after him under the sun? Uh, who knows what's good for man? Who knows what's coming after him? These are, these are questions that only God knows the answer to. We're finite. No one's going to remember us a century from now. This passage points us to our eternal longing by openly looking at the dissatisfaction, the disappointments in life. And our longings and our desires are very, very strong, even things that have nothing to do with God. Uh, the lost city of Pompeii, this is a Roman city. Um, it's believed that it was like a vacation resort city, essentially. In AD 79, Mount Vesuvius, which was just about two miles away, erupted. It erupted for a whole day. And for two days, uh, it covered this city with ash, with molten rock and, and pumice. And it, it totally entombed the city. And we call it the lost city. They didn't know it was there for more than 1,000 years. I think it was like 1,600 years before they discovered it. And, and they decided to excavate it. And they did it really, really carefully. When, when Vesuvius erupted, the molten lava traveled at 68 miles an hour by the time it got to, uh, to the city of Pompeii. So there was no escaping the disaster. And the amazing thing was it, it really did it happened so fast, and, and, and because of, of what rained on them, it froze this city. And, and, and today, you can walk through this city, and it, it, looks like, it looks like it did back then. And what's crazy is they started discovering these, these pockets. Right? Everything was solid, but then they discovered these, these pockets where there was nothing, and they realized that that's where people were. So they started filling those with, with some kind of uh, a substance that would harden, and then they would get it out, and they, they'd see the body shapes of people. They would see the, the posture of people. Sometimes, this is nuts, they could even see the facial expression of that person when they were entombed. There's one woman, she, was, she had her feet pointed towards the city gate. Right? She, was, she clearly knew that she needed to escape what was coming, but her body was turned and she was looking back at something that was just beyond her outstretched hand. It was a bag of pearls. Right? This is the temptation for all of us to turn from life to death by, by reaching for what we think will give us life. And the preacher says, it's not wealth. It's not possessions. It's not honor. It's not fill in the blank. It's not any of those things. Only God satisfies us. Psalm 107.9 says this. This is in our Bible reading. Uh, Bible read through a couple weeks ago. For he satisfies the longing soul. I mentioned earlier the woman at the well. Jesus providentially meets this Samaritan woman at the well. And it's a woman who's tried to satisfy her thirst over and over and over again through relationships with men. He offers this living water, water that, like I said, it becomes a spring. 
and, and completely and continuously will satisfy her thirst. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. He's the only one who gives life by giving up his life for ours. In Jesus, we're freed from pursuing other wells that will never satisfy us like him. So if you don't know Jesus, I wonder, are you done feeling empty? Do you recognize that where you try to find satisfaction will never satisfy you? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can give you life? And if so, what's keeping you from trusting him? Christians, I think it'd be really easy for us to hear this passage. This is nothing new to us, even if you haven't read Ecclesiastes before. And you could walk away and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I know that I need him. Where are you trusting in something other than God? It could be wealth. It could be any number of things that Ecclesiastes has already discussed. But Christians, we still have to daily decide to trust in Jesus for life. Here are a couple reasons that we don't, and there's probably many more. But one is that we doubt that he can provide what he says he will. We doubt that he'll come through the way he says. The woman at the well had this doubt. She said to Jesus, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to draw up this water? She didn't believe he could do what he said, and we do this all the time. We doubt, God, can you really satisfy me? Will you really come through? We, we can't see how God's going to provide, so we put our trust in what we can see. We put our trust in what we can get for ourselves, even though these things don't compare to what God offers us. So you, do you trust in God as much as you trust in money? Are you more comforted in knowing God, or are you more comforted knowing that you have a six-month emergency fund? This passage mentioned the wandering appetite. Well, our eyes wander. We live in a, a hyper-sexualized culture that all the time is trying to sell us that that's what we need, that that's what will make us feel good. Single people, will, will you trust God when, when he tells you to save that for marriage? Married people, will you trust God to save that for marriage? We can't buy the lie that sex is what will satisfy us. Another reason that we don't trust is we're lazy. We don't want to wait on the Lord. We don't want to wait for his good provision at his perfect timing. We want it now. Even when we know that that thing isn't good for us and could even kill us. So antifreeze, the weird thing about antifreeze is um, not only is it poisonous, not only does it taste sweet, but it, uh, it doesn't necessarily kill you right away. There's a, uh, an employee that worked for uh, someone that, that made antifreeze, and he liked the taste, this sounds crazy, but he liked the taste so much that he would sip a little bit every day. Every day, he'd sip antifreeze. Can you imagine that? And, and, and it took years for this to impact his body. It took years for this poison to, to I don't know if it built up or how it worked, but it took years for this man to get really, really sick. Just because it tastes good, just because it's quick, doesn't mean it's good. I don't know if you've ever made a brisket, right? Awesome, awesome barbecue meat. But it, it, you make a brisket, and this is an all-day affair, right? This is like a 14, 16, maybe 18-hour process of smoking this meat at really, really low heat. 
because that's what makes brisket taste good. You could chuck it in an oven or even a really hot grill and cook it in just a couple hours probably, but it wouldn't taste as good. It wouldn't be what you long for. Will we trust God to satisfy us rather than settle for quick fixes? Jesus died so that we could put to death our sin of trusting in anything and everything besides him. He took on our sin, which just means he, he took on a rebellion against God so that we could be raised with him to new life. That in him, we could be raised from our under-the-sun pursuits, from all these things that will never satisfy us like him. That by trusting in Jesus, we can know our creator and have our deepest needs met in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for all the disappointments in life. I thank you for every time that we're not satisfied by the thing that we think is going to satisfy us. I thank you for times when life even feels empty, God, because I, I'm pretty sure that's you pointing us to you, Lord, that, that you're helping us to see that, man, this life isn't all we make it out to be, that we need you, Jesus. Lord, I, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you yet, but that's, that's looking at you, that's, that's trying to figure out if they believe, Lord, would you help them? Would you help them to believe in you? Would you give them the faith to trust in you? Jesus, I pray for um, Christians in the room, Lord. I pray about the things that, that our wandering eye goes after, that we think, man, it's not a big deal. It's not going to be that bad for me. And, and yet we go further and further like that man who just kept drinking poison. Lord, would we put our hope, our trust in you alone? Would we trust you to be the one that satisfies us? Would we trust and believe that you are the life giver? Jesus, we love you. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen.